Hello, everyone, and welcome to Frontier Talk, the world's first podcast on decentralized identity. I'm Raj Hegde, and in this podcast, we explore the intersection of identity, people, and technology. Digital identity is a representation of you on the internet. It essentially is any personal data that can be traced back to you. Over the last three decades, my guest on the pod today has has worked tirelessly to break new ground and establish a user-centric identity layer for the internet. He is a pioneer who has spent some of the most widely used identity standards on the internet today and has centered his energy around the trifecta of identity, user-centricity, and privacy. Here to share his take on the symbiosis of decentralized identity and user-centricity, Natsakimura, chairman of the OpenID Foundation. Sakimura-san, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the pod today. Thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, venue. I'm really pleased to join you. Likewise, it, the honor is all mine, uh, Sakimura-san. Um, for our audience, uh, I highly urge you guys to stick around till the end of the episode because we have a little surprise in store for you. Um, so anyways, let's get started. So Nat, you've established yourself as a global expert in the field of identity. Um, what originally drove you to specialize in this space? All right, so that was a little bit personal thing. Uh, my mm-hmm. daughter had, had a surgery, uh, which was a failure. And at the time, I uh, desperately needed access to her medical record, but I was not able to. There was no legislation like that as well. So uh, I uh, dipped my feet in this field, right, uh, to make it possible for people to get their own data, well, their, you know, family's data. And, you know, for that, digital identity was actually kind of essential, especially when right. we want to get it from the remote site. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite inspiring. Um, and for our audience, could you perhaps shed some light on the work that OpenID Foundation does? What essentially is the OpenID Foundation? And could you perhaps expound on your role as chairman of the foundation? Okay, so OpenID Foundation is a, um, it's a non-profit organization which is specialized on the standardization, the international standardization of digital identity and API access management. Um, we have created, uh, our main product is something called OpenID Connect, right? It's a standard which is being used by a lot of places, uh, from big techs to the companies to uh, the small guy like me is uh, running my own identity server since 2011. Right. So, um, so that's the core product, and we are actually uh, creating, uh, you know, the profiles, add-ons, and things like that, which makes it easier and more secure. Uh, for people to transact on the internet. Right. Um, and could you perhaps um, talk a bit about OpenID Connect? Essentially, what role does it play on the internet today? So, um, internet, unfortunately, came out without the notion of identity. Okay. And, um, you know, by identity, I mean the set of attributes, right? Um, it's going to be used to recognize uh, one person or one entity. You know, it doesn't really matter whether it's a person or it's a process, you know, 
both those things or something like that. But um, to make the internet environment safer to transact, you really need to be able to find out who you are actually talking to, right? You right. need to be able to authenticate the other party. And to do so, we need to gather a bunch of the character, bunch of characteristics, which we call as, um, attributes or claims from the other parties, right? And evaluate if that's trustworthy enough. So OpenID Connect is essentially doing that. We call it, um, selective attribute disclosure protocol. Okay. So uh, it actually allows you to express yourself as having a set of attributes. We call it claims, right? Because you're mm-hmm. claiming that claims Absolutely. attested by somebody else. You usually because, you know, if it's just self-claimed, it's really hard for the receiving, receiving party to believe, right? Tested mm-hmm. by, usually attested by somebody, uh, and pass it on to the receiving party. So that the receiving, receiving party, which we call as a grind party, can actually evaluate what's in it and evaluate that it was actually attested by somebody he trusts or he or she trusts. And the message hasn't been tampered. Right. Interesting. And did I make it clear? So absolutely, no, no doubts. Um, but I'm I'm curious to know, like, how do you bring about um, a physical representation of oneself on the internet, particularly at a time when you know no such thing exists, there is no identity layer. So how do you come up with standards for something that doesn't really exist at the moment? Yeah, that, that's an evolutionary concept, right? Absolutely, so yeah. Connect, yeah. Um, some, some people, uh, say that OpenID Connect is some of 3.0 or something like that. So okay. we've been doing that for, in, in iterations for many times, right? Right. Started off from the LDAP and things like that. And then we said, Oh God. Okay. We'll do it better next time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We, it's always yeah, the case. We repeated that. Yeah. Yeah. Practice. Yeah. Perfect. So. Before we deep dive into decentralized identity, uh, could you perhaps double click on the concept of digital identity in itself? So what essentially is digital identity today? So uh, that goes back to the concept of identity, I, I guess. Um, the concept of identity is actually once you know, somebody being able to project himself or herself or themselves, right, to other party so that they will have similar perception of yourself. You've got your own self-image and you want the other party, the receiving party to have the recognition of yourself, which is hopefully more or less the same as your self-image, right? Absolutely. Which doesn't really happen because, um, you, you just can't, you know, put electrodes onto the receiver's head and that is correct. You know, Absolutely. Uh, make her uh, recognize like that. But, um, so uh, you, you know, keep trying it to close the gap between their perception and your perception of yourself. Right. Okay. And 
for doing that, you keep providing, you, you, tr- you try sending, okay, this time, this kind of attributes, like how you behave, right? Mm-hmm. And then you try another thing and things like that. And you are always, um, adjusting it. That is to uh, close the gap, to minimize the gap. And, um, that image is identity, right? It's your identity. You know, that, that's what you perceive yourself as. Correct. And that's how, uh, you want the other party to perceive you as. Mm-hmm. And the that's medium right. to do that is actually the set of attributes that you are going to be providing to the other party. Correct. All right. So, um, in the technical term, in, in the, you know, IT world, we define identity as set of attributes related to an entity. So set, okay. set of attributes related to me is my identity. Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to have many identities, right? Correct. Uh, we, we're going, uh, I have many kind of relationships or contexts and I choose to provide other sets of attributes to each, each context or each receiver. But, uh, that's how identity is. And digital identity is a digital representation of that. Okay. Brilliant. Um, yeah, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, users, people, humans have multiple identities and the internet in particular makes that possible. Um, so my question to you is why should people take digital identity seriously? And more importantly, how can they effectively manage these multiple identities um, on the internet today? Right. So let's try, uh, let's attack the first, let's address the first question. Why should they take digital identity seriously? Because if you don't have effective digital identity that you can control, you will not be able to express yourself Mm -hmm. on the internet. That is, you will not be able to exist in the way you want to be in the cyberspace. Correct. So unless you really take digital identity seriously, you will not be able to exist in the cyberspace, which is becoming increasingly important in our life, especially mm-hmm. in the post-COVID world. Now, the second question is, how can they effectively manage multiple identities? That's a very, very hard question. Um, it's something to do with the user interface and, you know, and the understanding of how it works, but it's really difficult for most people to actually make it out how things work under the hood, right? So right. as an identity professionals, we have to devise a way in which people can use it intuitively, just like they do in the real world. You know, in the real world, we, um, you know, Keep our multiple, multiple identities, right? Your, uh, face as father, your face as, uh, your colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. There's a different facet, different identities. And you do it, you know, 
without thinking intuitively. Correct. And uh, the what we are targeting at is trying to make some something like that possible in the digital world as well. Unfortunately, okay. we haven't got there. Mm-hmm. We even don't probably don't really know how to do it yet. Right. All right. But uh, that's where we are going. Okay. Uh, right. And um, yeah, as you just uh, mentioned, um, identity is fragmented today. You know, people have multiple identities. We have multiple identity providers today. There's also, uh, well, well, we're also living in an era of centralization with with big tech, banks, governments, you know, all sort of all sorts of entities say vying to become the identity provider of choice. So I see a lot of similarities uh, between the early days of the Open ID Foundation and the decentralized identity community today, so to say. So my question to you would be: How did Open ID aggregate all of these parties in into a single ecosystem? Um, the situation is very different uh, then and now. So okay. um, you actually have to take it with a grain of salt. But okay. um, what actually helped to uh, get all the people, you know, all the competitors uh, in one tent was that we were actually trying to be really, really use case agnostic. And we also uh, listened to the market requirements seriously. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, our motto then was uh, simple thing, simple, simple things, simple, and complex thing possible. Okay. And we made sure that simple thing can be done very simply at the scale. So uh, that kind of attitude seemed to help uh, people to flock to the foundation to create the single standard. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this single standard is actually really important because uh, then we will get the benefit of uh, increasing return, right? The benefit from the scales. So that's, I think, what happened at the time. Right. Um, and you know the current industry paradigm, as you might know, is is that sensitive data is stored in centralized honeypots. You know, uh, we have a finite number of identity providers today, and the implications of having data stored in such honeypots of sorts is that there are irreversible data breaches, data leaks, all sorts of scandals associated with personally identifiable information. Um, my question to you is. Um, is decentralized identity an antidote to this problem? What's your take on this? All right. So um, this, you know, centralized, decentralized dichotomy is a little bit uh, misleading, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the From the user-centricity or, you know, person-first kind of point of view, it's more of the control, which is important, Right. Absolutely. And so even if the, the data topology is centralized, if the user is given the control and the, uh, the provider of the service actually doesn't use it for their purposes, then part of the, the 
the, the issues that we are facing right now will be solved. At the same time, if the data topology was completely distributed, still the control was on the provider's side. Mm-hmm. And that's entirely possible, right? Uh, recently, uh, you know, the mobile operation uh, operating system vendor announced that they are going to look into your phones and search for the things and, you know, uh, remove or report or things like that. That's Correct. entirely possible. So even if the data topology is completely distributed, you still may not establish a desirable amount of control. So that's one aspect that we have to look at from the centralized and decentralized. Mm-hmm. What we, what's important is the control from the quote unquote right kind of side, you know, possible right. right. Now, then you talked about the data breach. Yes, data breach is going to be probably at the, t- at this moment, um, kind of more dangerous in the case of centralized data store the, mm-hmm. or the, well, the centralized is not really a good word for that. The, the over accumulation of data, right? Right. Because, uh, it may be, you know, stolen at one go, you know, with one security hole, something like that. But, and, uh, the currently the, the network that these things operates, mm-hmm. uh, too slow to be effective, uh, for those, uh, bad guys probably but even the, the the other perspective is that if that becomes fast enough mm-hmm. and then even if the data is distributed completely distributed to the uh the mobile phones that people has their own in, in their hand mm-hmm. uh perhaps the wallet app for example may be correct having a security hole and the bad guy may be able to extract all the data. Right. I, th- I think some, some, some great points there, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, do you see a future where centralized and decentralized approaches to identity would coexist or are they two separate entities in their own right? So centralized and decentralized, I mean, the, um, I've given this talk in a separate forum, but the very seldom one technology can completely replace other. Okay. Um, things pile on, right? So the existing infrastructure usually, um, remains for a very long time. And then okay. new infrastructure actually comes on top of it. Mm-hmm. So from looking from that pattern, I, I think for a long time, centralized, quote unquote centralized, right? And mm-hmm. decentralized actually probably would coexist. Now, one caveat is that there's no completely centralized system. It's right. shade of gray. Right. So, so my next question to you is, um, you know, on one hand, we have a billion people living without identity today you know, denying them crucial access to to essential financial and social services. While on the other hand, big tech is increasingly correlating information about us today. So my question to you is, 
does decentralized identity have a role to play in in perhaps squaring this this circle to widen the access to digital identity? Sure, it does. I mean, the the so there are people who are denied to have even legal identities, right? Correct. Um, and those marginalized people are not interesting enough for commercial entity to provide the mm-hmm. identity. So uh, for those people, something like decentralized identity, at least the notion, could become very important. Now, if it's going to be a smartphone wallet type of digital you know, decentralized identity, I don't know, really. Uh, those people may only have you know, a very old feature phone, right? Well, they may even right. be lacking um, good access to network or electricity. So mm-hmm. um, that's something we actually have to consider. Also, we also have to be cognizant that the reason why uh, many of those uh, marginalized people are lacking access to, for example, banking service is not because mm-hmm. of big techs, right? Uh, right now, we are fighting against uh, money laundering and terrorism financing. And mm-hmm. uh, FATF uh, has put a lot of restriction towards the banking services to throughout those. But that has actually driven up the banking costs substantially. I mean, the KYC and, uh, you know, monitoring for the money laundering costs so mm-hmm. much. And because of that, onboarding, uh, those, uh, poor people with like, you know, just $50 a month income to a bank became completely uninteresting from the commercial point of view from right. the bank. So unless we solve that kind of problem, you know, the, the onboarding cost problem, the banking mm-hmm. service probably won't be, um, will be, will not be provided to those people. So we have to look at those, you know, social aspect as well. Right. It just, just, just simple technical solution wouldn't work. Absolutely. That's true. That's true. This, this concept of onboarding, you know, essentially serves as the perfect segue, uh, to my next question. Um, I'd like to explore this symbiosis of decentralized identity and, and user centricity. You know, uh, Johannes Ernst mentions that any identity interface should make user centricity as its core proposition. Um, how would you currently describe decentralized approaches to user centricity today? I can't claim to know every you know, decentralized identity scheme, right? It's kind of mm-hmm. fragmented right now. So um, maybe generalization could be hard. But the, as I understand, most of the new identity schemes, including OpenID, by the way, is uh, based on the user-centric com- concept, right? Mm-hmm. It's the user who decide whether that particular claims or achievements are going to be provided to the drawing party. So that's the core concept in most of the 
those modern identity federation identity what we call modern identity technologies and uh, decentralized mm-hmm. identity technologies. All right, so uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, decentralized approach. So I don't claim to know everything. So uh, the right. generalization is a bit hard. But um, mm-hmm. from what I know is that modern identity technologies, even including OpenID Connect, is based on user centricity. That okay. means user is at the core in deciding what attributes are going to be provided to the run parties. Now, um, so I'd be very surprised if uh, there are new scheme which actually doesn't allow that to happen. Correct. Now, having that, said that, uh, there's one important point that I would like to uh, make uh, because I'm a consumer advocate as well. I'm mm-hmm. just relying too much on user consent is very very dangerous because people tend to over consent. So I'm preaching to uh, most people that user consent actually is a last resort. You should try to use other um, legal basis if possible. Okay. Could you perhaps expound on this concept of, of why people tend to over consent? I'm curious to know about this. All right. So there are enough ex- experiments, right? Um, uh, conducted everywhere in the world. Uh, for example, one of the um, e- example was that people was asked to agree to the terms of service and provide okay. all their data. And the the first uh, item in the terms of service that was that if you agree to this um, agreement, you agree to give up your son. Right. Okay. And uh, what was in return was just a chocolate bar. Correct. So they they. They are, and most people actually agree, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, asking quote unquote consent to consumer is a bad idea. You, it's really difficult to get the real consent. I mean, you can have people click yes button, mm-hmm. but that's, that doesn't equate consent, right? Yeah, there, sure. there are lots of conditions for consent. Correct. And, one of the the condition is that the the consenter actually understand what he's doing. Absolutely, that's that's one of the most uh, important and fundamental uh, yeah reasons for yes. consent. Yes, and that's something. really hard. That's really hard. Right, that is true. Right, so um, and especially when uh, people are confronted with so many consent screens mm-hmm. that they have to press button, it will become a numbing experience, um, they tend to start clicking yes to everything. Yeah, that is true. I mean, every time I get an agreement in front of me, you have like 10, 11 pages, I just click on yes, agree, without even like reading through the agreement. So so yeah, yeah I, right? do, I yeah. do agree and on that uh, point. It's just behavior. Yeah, it's just fundamental to us. This, this is just common human behavior. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you actually seriously look at it, it's completely infeasible to read all the, um, you know, those legal documents. Mm-hmm. Um, besides that, most people actually don't have the ability to read it. Right. You know, all the time. Legal language is really Correct. difficult. That right? is true. Yeah. Um, even if had, if, even if you had the ability to do that, um, I have seen a study that it will actually take 
full one month. I mean, unless I'm paid by the hour to read through stuff, like I wouldn't even look at legal language to be honest. Legal lingo has its own has its own little space on the side. So that's completely infeasible, and it's uh, it's completely unrealistic mm-hmm. to expect that the users actually read through them mm-hmm. and uh, understand them and consent. Right. And uh, I was talking to one of the big tech guy. You know, Number of years ago, okay. uh, he was actually uh, he was on the identity team, and he was actually fighting against their legal team, right? Mm-hmm. And their legal team was asking uh, the identity team to get consent for everything that the company wanted to um, collect. Right. And the uh, identity team was saying that, look, the person is clicking yes within one second on average. That is true. That means that they are not reading it. So um, it's impossible to assume that they actually agreed. Correct. So uh, it's completely wrong to try to collect the quote-unquote consent for all the things that uh, we are trying to obtain. Mm-hmm. We should minimize the data that we are collecting. Right. And just present like two or three lines of explanation about why they are doing so. Okay. Instead of, you know, giving the user 30 pages document. Yep, I understand. Um, to add to that, um, what are some of these unsolved gaps that you see uh, in decentralized identity today? One being the, the consent issue. Uh, anything else that comes to mind? Um, consent is one thing. The, the other thing is that the looks to me that they are very much fragmented right now. Mm-hmm. Um, from the point of view of the running parties, if it is fragmented, it's really difficult to adapt. I mean, uh, fragmentation means that the addressable market segment for each method becomes so small, mm-hmm. and it will probably become really difficult for them to justify their investment to implement those. So, uh, you know, I'm wishing that they the space will consolidate a little bit. I'm um, consolidate doesn't mean the the players consolidate, right? Mm-hmm. It's the standard. If they can come together to like a few options mm-hmm. only instead of the 94 right now, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be really useful, I think. Right. Um, you mentioned earlier that the OpenID um, Foundation essentially was was built on the context of, of being use case agnostic. While on the other hand, in the decentralized identity community, we have a, a large number of platforms and protocols that solely focus on a specific use case. And taking this user centricity question uh, in light, um, what's your take? Should, should the focus be on, on, on a use case in this case, or should it be more focused on on, on human agency, on, on trying to give more power to the customer, to the end user to say, take control over the identity? Or do you need a mix between the two? What's, what's the right, uh, yeah, mix here? So we definitely need to look at the use cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with OpenID Connect, we have looked at many use cases and we try to solve 80% of use cases. Okay. Right? Um, with the single protocol. Right. And that's possible, right? I mean, you can't solve 
everything in one protocol. That's for sure, mm-hmm. right? But um, you could try to, um, you know, build a platform of the protocol, which would solve majority of the use cases, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, there could be use case specific uh, bits, which is not solved by solved by the core protocol itself, right? In that case, you should just build the that portion instead of you know trying to make build everything completely separate from others. Right. In- so mm-hmm. yeah, I mean the use case is really important. We should uh, be realistic on the use case, but um, at the same time, like you said, we should achieve that through a core protocol, which enables users to control, take control. Okay, and um, you know, speaking about this, this, this element of user centricity, do you have any, any, any suggestions uh, that platforms in the space could? Could could use to say not only onboard more parties and more participants, but also bring the focus, or or rather move towards being a more user centric platform, so to say. Because you know, I I spend a lot of time with the decentralized identity community. They are, uh, well, it's one of the most passionate communities that I've been a part of, uh, and you know, there's so much to learn from, and they truly want to empower the user um, at the front. But, you know, from a technological perspective, you have, you know, issues pertaining to onboarding, uh, private key management and credential management and so on and so forth. So any tips from your side to navigate such a complex ecosystem at this point in time? Yeah, it's really difficult uh, for, you know, create, it's really difficult to create a, easy to use, you know, user experience, mm-hmm. the intuitive user experience so that people can actually use. I mean, that we tend to, you know, um, talk within the uh, tech community or not, mm-hmm. so to speak. And uh, we tend to assume too much capability right. the, about the people, but that's probably not the way to go. Right. So um, we need to be quite practical. And so the, we, I kind of believe that we need to do a lot of user study and that can actually be cultural, culturally dependent, right? Okay. So, and I, I think we don't have enough knowledge and experience on that. Right. And uh, speaking about practicality, uh, what problems do you think decentralized identity are, are best suited to solve? Okay, so uh, my um, that actually depends on the decent, you know, the definition of decentralized identity. But the, the decentralized identity, as I view as uh, identity information, right, the set of attributes which is being attested by authoritative parties. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many authoritative parties in the world. For example, uh, if you want to attest that you have a degree from 
such and such school, then that school is the authoritative source for that attestation, mm-hmm. right? Or if you want to prove that your employment and your position in that company, then that company is uh, the authoritative source. Correct. Right. And the my view of uh, decentralized identity is that these authoritative sources start issuing those attestations. Okay. In a common format. So that uh, the person in the center, like me, can start using them to express themselves. Right. Um, so, um, you know, the COVID passport is just one thing like that. Mm-hmm. But I, what I'm hoping is that the the format for you know, the other format for such thing and the, the signature and the verification format methods are going to be uh, standardized so that uh, from the implementation point of view and the reader's point of view, it's going to be really easy to consume them. Brilliant. Um, in our calls earlier, you you mentioned that any new technology happens incrementally. Um, so my question to you is, when do you see standardized, decentralized approaches eventually becoming a reality? The verifiable credential kind of, you know, the, the attestation side, I think it's going to happen uh, quite soon okay. in a space of a number of years, right? I mean, to be able to control them, control the flow of those attested claims um, effectively for majority of the population still needs a little bit of work, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and at the same time, um, it might end up, but for that, for some, um, uh, portion of the population, somebody like cloud-based service, which may look like centralized for the, from the topology point of view, mm-hmm. but as long as, uh, they don't control it and it's uh, control is on the user side, I think that's okay. And will um, provide a way for a lot of people to actually make effective uh, control of their attributes or identities on the cyberspace. Right. So you're pushing for a more hybrid approach uh, to identity. Yeah. So right. I mean, you know, the managing key, private key, is really difficult yeah, for most people. That is right? true. Yeah. I'm on the you know extreme side that I tend to everything myself, right? That is correct. I do have like a file sharing service of myself. Mm-hmm. I do operate my own email server and so on and so forth. It's crazy. <laughs> but that's, I don't expect that, you know, to, I don't expect most people to be able to do that. Right. So. so scalability would be an issue, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. So um, the term decentralized is almost always associated with uh, blockchain technology. Um, I'm curious to know, are there any technologies beyond blockchain that focus on decentralized identity? I think they are orthogonal okay. ideas. Right? Blockchain is a technology that can be used to implement decentralized identity. Mm-hmm. But decentralized identity doesn't need blockchain. 
uh, or decentralized identity can be implemented without blockchain. Um, so, so finally, um, what is the area of innovation that Natsakimura is spending most of his time wrestling with at the moment? So, um, you know, I'm actually in the process of changing focus a little bit right now. Okay. Because I have, I, I, I'm pretty much down with the FAPI kind of thing, uh, you know, financial grade API security mm-hmm. thing. Uh, it's been deployed in UK, Australia, Brazil, soon to be on United States and Canada. And uh, it's being deployed within Russia and so on and so forth. So it's kind of done okay. uh, to me. And I mean, the, there are version two of it, but uh, there are enough you know, people that I trust who's working on that. So, okay, I'm moving on, right? right? And so uh, what I'm actually uh, looking at right now is how to express um, the trustworthiness of the claims, mm-hmm. the attributes, right? So uh, that's uh, based on you know metadata, like uh, how it was verified, okay, when it was verified, and who verified it, and so on and so forth. Uh, that kind of metadata is really important in establishing the trustworthiness of the attested claims. Absolutely. And uh, that's the kind of things we are working right now. Also, um, that extends into the person within the corporation. So we call it the authority claims, but, you know, if you, are, for example, you work for Kupinger Co., right? Mm-hmm. But, um, and you have certain responsibility and authority within the company. Correct. How do you express that? That's a good question, right? Correct. So, uh, that's the kind of thing that we are definitely lacking right now. Right. So, uh, we have started working with that in, uh, that working group called EKYC and IDA. Mm-hmm. Idea means identity assurance. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I'm the, my vision of, uh, identity deployment is that, you know, no one scheme captures everything or no one scheme is able to take care of everybody. Okay. Right. So, uh, I'm currently working on the, Banking identity, mm-hmm. right? So that uh, financial institutions can actually serve as a trust anchor for their customer, you know, both individuals as well as the merchant or you know, companies. And then uh, hopefully uh, we can set up a trust framework sort of things right. for that community, financial community. Right. And then, you know, in the developing world, uh, a lot of people, sometimes the majority of the population is unbanked. That is correct. So that kind of scheme doesn't work there. Right. Mm-hmm. Then there need to be uh, alternatives for you know, high assurance, trusted identity. True. And, uh, the most potent candidate for that is mobile identity. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, for example, in Kenya, Safaricom's 
providing M-Pesa. And that's the de facto, you know, payment mechanism. Absolutely. Out there, right? So, um, that can form another, you know, chunk of identity, um, you know, scheme, so to speak, in that kind of juice, uh, geography. And then, uh, my vision is that, uh, they actually interconnect on the compara- comparability principles so that they can interoperate to each other. Right. So we build the islands of those communities and, uh, you know, start, uh, connecting these communities together. So that's something we are working, I'm working on. And actually we are making a kind of announcement at the forthcoming European Identity Conference. Absolutely. We look forward to having you in person at, at the European Identity and Cloud Conference this year. Um, uh, some of the stuff that you've mentioned just now sounds incredibly idealistic and inspiring. And I wish you the very best of luck in, in all of your ventures moving forward. I'm sure you're going to come up with even more groundbreaking stuff, uh, just like how you set up the identity layer of sorts, you know, two to three decades ago. Um, on that note, you know, it's now time for, for my favorite part of the show, which is Frontier Fire, where I put my guests on the spot by asking them a series of rapid fire questions. So, Sakimura-san, are you ready? Okay. Perfect. Try, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get started. Um, describe yourself in three words. Identity, privacy, architect. Ah, superb. Um, what's your mantra in life? Look inside. Okay, very reflective. Um, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? I don't know if it's important or not, but I'm actually more short, short tempered than most people believe. I really? I mean, I mean, you seem like yeah. one of the most calmest people out there. Like at least, you know, in the episodes that I've recorded, it's like a, it, 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 it has a very Zen like feeling today. So, so I mean, I would find that very hard to believe. So I think that's a great answer, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's the one skill that has helped you stay a generation head when it comes to, to the field of identity? Um, combination of broad view and ability to listen, uh, ability to listen. Okay. Um, a book you would recommend to our audience? Um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Okay. Um, and what's the best piece of career advice you've received? Invest into yourself. Okay. And name a person who inspires you. That was the hard question. Right. right? Time is ticking. I, 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 yeah. You know, because it's because a person, right? Yeah. I, I tend to get inspired by everybody I talk to. Okay. Right. Right. So I think, I think you can, yeah, bypass that question. That's, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, finally, what's, what's your advice to anyone listening to this podcast? Just like I said in my mantra, try to look inside. Uh, do not, uh, be blinded by the, um, the, the flashiness of the surface, right? For example, uh, when blockchain came out, mm-hmm. everybody was, you know, going there saying that this saves the world kind of things, which of course is not true. Uh, if you really look into it, there are lots of things that we actually, you know, work on. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's really important to look at the 
substance. Great answer there, Sakimura-san. Right. Um, for our audience, thanks for sticking around this far. You know, as promised, we have a little something for you guys. Uh, for those of you who might not know, Sakimura-san is a phenomenal instrumentalist. He plays the flute better than anyone else I know. Um, so, Sakimura-san, what will you be playing for us today? Okay, so I'm thinking of playing um, for us uh, City Land. Okay. You guys like love it. We look forward to that. Please, the stage is yours. All right, so uh, I, I actually can't play flute here because this is a small place and I'll start hitting my uh, you know, everything with my flute. So <laughs> right, I true. To move to another room. So Sure, please. Okay. Sakimura-san, I am completely flawed. That was an incredible rendition of Sicilian. I'm sure Fore will be smiling up from the heavens today. Um, thank you so much for considering this request. And thank you again for your time. This conversation was an incredible learning experience for me. And I'm sure our audience today are a lot more wiser about concepts surrounding digital identity and user centricity. On behalf of Coping a Coal, I wish you the very best of luck in all of your endeavors moving forward. And I'm sure you will continue to break new ground in the identity sphere. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nat. It was my pleasure to be part of your program. That was Nat Sakimura. Nat will be delivering a keynote at the European Identity and Cloud Conference, EIC. And you can get your tickets via the link in the description box below. Um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation that dabbled around decentralized identity, the question of user centricity, and also explored the concept of digital identity. Um, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share this with anyone you might know. Uh, we thrive on your feedback, so please post in your comments in the comment section. And until next time, I hope to see you again on this fascinating journey to redefine the I in identity. Until next time, stay safe.